Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Super interesting episode coming up today with a brand new guest. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, I want to tell you all about UW-Green Bay Psychology Week brought to you by Bellin Psychiatric Center. This is coming up the week of March 25th through the 29th. We've got in-person and online content all week long. That includes a couple of evening events like our side talks held here at the Widener Center, the brand new Psychology Spark sessions held downtown Green Bay at Titletown, and our volunteer night. Plus, we'll have a bunch of online content, including four brand new episodes of Psychology and Stuff that week, new videos, and much, much more. All of this is made possible by the Bellin Psychiatric Center, who, as you know, provides top quality inpatient, outpatient, and addiction treatment services for individuals across the region. You can learn more about all of this at the PsychWeek website, uwgb.edu slash psychweek. Dr. Will Cox is an assistant scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he does some fascinating research on stereotyping, including, as he puts it in his research statement, how to reduce the injustices, human suffering, and disparities that arise from stereotyping and prejudice. I did an interview with him earlier this week via phone, so the sound quality isn't quite what you would get from one of our in-studio interviews, but I promise you it is well worth it. He is a fascinating guy doing some really, really interesting research. My name is William Cox. Um, I'm an assistant scientist in the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I got my PhD in social psychology about three or four years ago, uh, and I do research on uh, the way the brain's learning mechanisms perpetuate things like stereotypes and biases, um, and also the way that those things can be perpetuated in culture. Um, and then I, I kind of take that basic lab-based research um, and translate it into interventions and trainings that uh, help people work on overcoming bias within themselves. And then I test those interventions and uh, evaluate their effectiveness over time. Oh wow! So I want to get into I want to get into all of that, but I'm curious. Can you just start out by telling me how you you know became interested in that area of research? Uh, sure. So um, I was uh, um, adopted into a military family that was uh, multiracial and uh, multicultural, and grew up um, in many different places, um, other countries, and many different places within the U.S. Um, and so, kind of my whole life. Uh, Things like race and gender and culture were always kind of uh, uh, present for me in a way that they, they aren't for a lot of people. And I always kind of noticed how people get got treated differently based on the color of their skin or their gender or uh, sexual orientation and so on. Um, and so kind of bias and stereotypes were just kind of always there. Um, and I uh, I always kind of wanted to be a scientist. I, I enjoyed kind of solving problems and thinking through things logically. Um, And so when I got to college, um, I had a psychology class and a sociology class my very first semester, and they were both so exciting and interesting to me. Um, And so I thought I would pursue social psychology. Um, And then the specific topic was then things like stereotypes and biases and and so on. Wonderful. And where did you go to graduate school? Um, so I went, I went to graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, where I okay. now am an assistant scientist. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I was looking through your uh, your website, which is great, by the way, and I want to make sure I tell everybody it's, uh, it's sciencecox.com, and that's spelled uh, C-O-X dot com. Um, tons of, of really good stuff there. And 
um, was kind of looking through things. I'm curious to know, um, so what do you think are some of, like, the most important applications of your work? Um, applications specifically, so definitely the intervention work. Um, so over the last 10 years, along with my colleagues, uh, Patricia Devine and uh, Patrick Forsher and, and um, several others, we developed and perfected um, this intervention approach called the habit-breaking intervention that teaches people about how stereotypes um, and biases are like automatically activated mental habits um, and then gives them kind of concrete steps on how to work on changing those habits. And across many randomized controlled studies now, we've shown that this intervention actually helps people to overcome bias, uh, make them more concerned about bias and discrimination as serious problems, make them more aware of biases that might happen within themselves, and gives them tools to actually overcome those biases within themselves to behave in a more egalitarian way, more consistently with what their values say, um, how their values say they should act. So can you walk me through what the intervention looks like? Uh, you know, so if I'm a, if I come in to, to meet with you or, or to meet with someone on this, what, what does it look like from my end? What, what's the process like? Yeah, so, so there's kind of two main versions of it. One is uh, computerized, so it's, uh, People sit at a computer with headphones and they listen to me talk them through all the all the points, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, and then there's an in-person version, which which is um, usually done for groups, sometimes at companies, or um, we've done it with departments here at UW Madison, with uh, different departments in the science community. Um, and basically, people come in and uh, talk format with me, or maybe me and a colleague uh, presenting the information over the course of about two hours, kind of a two-hour lecture with interaction and discussion. Um, and I mean, the basics are we, we kind of cover where bias comes from, where stereotypes come from, um, the ways that they become um, kind of ingrained in people's minds through socialization and culture, um, and explain the different ways that bias can play out, um, often often without people being aware um, that they're being influenced by, by bias or stereotyping. Um, and then we teach people the habit model, so basically this idea I mentioned before of bias being kind of like a mental habit, teach them how to, the steps involved in breaking a habit. So to break a habit, you have to become aware that you're vulnerable to the habit. You have to become aware of the different contexts and ways the habit plays out. Um, you have to be motivated. You have to care about changing the habit if you don't personally um, care. Um, you're not going to put any effort into changing the habit. Um, so motivation, awareness, and then you have to have uh, strategies that actually work. So in the realm of bias uh, and diversity-related things, very often people think they know what they should do to um, overcome bias, but actually a lot of the strategies that they kind of intuitively reach for, a lot of the strategies backfire and actually make them appear more biased. Um, and so we Can you say more about that? that? Sure. I'm sorry to um, interrupt, so but I'm kind of fascinated by that. Yeah, yeah, uh, no problem. Um, so, for instance, uh, one thing, so if people want to not express bias, it's kind of intuitive that the opposite of being biased is being objective, right? So people just kind of strive to be objective. Um, but actually the process of striving to be objective um, tends to lead to people questioning themselves less. So if they think they're objective, they are less likely to question the thoughts that pop into their head and where they came from because they're an objective person. So whatever they think must be true. Um, and, and so on. So kind of striving blindly for objectivity is one way, one thing that seems intuitive but ends up backfiring and actually leads to people expressing more bias rather than less. Um, another example is color blindness. So a lot of people think, oh, well, if I just, you know, don't see race or don't see gender, you know, I can't possibly be biased. 
um, and that's that's another ineffective strategy that kind of seems intuitive um, that actually backfires because, of course, you can see race. Um, it's readily visually apparent. Visual systems pick up on people's skin colors and so on. Um, it transmits information to your brain that then activates the stereotypes and biases. And if you're just trying to ignore that, um, it actually often makes people appear more biased rather than less. So, so we caution people against these and a couple other ineffective strategies, and then give them some strategies that have research has actually shown to be effective. Walk me through some of those, and what are some of those strategies like? Um, so um, it's a toolkit of um, five to seven strategies, depending on uh, when we're we're giving the training and to what audience. Um, but one of the, one of the main strategies, just a mental um, mental technique, it's called stereotype replacement, and basically it involves a couple steps. And I, I invented this mnemonic to help people remember the steps. And the mnemonic is detect, reflect, reject. And so stereotype replacement involves detecting when stereotypic thoughts pop to mind or stereotypic assumptions are popping to mind. Reflect on where that thought came from and and maybe what some of the impact of that thought is on other people. So if I have an assumption or it pops into my mind that um, uh, maybe uh, the stereotype that girls aren't supposed to be good in math and science, um, I can detect when it pops to mind and I can reflect on like, well, think of all the ways that that affects women who are trying to be scientists and all the assumptions about young girls who they might, you know, be encouraged not to go into science because of this kind of stereotype. So the reflect step kind of uh, slows down your thinking and makes you uh, reflect a bit more, which is why it's called that. Um, and then reject. So if that's not the way that you want to think about people, if that doesn't match your values, you just kind of reject that way of thinking. Say, I don't want to think that way. I don't want to make those assumptions about people. And then um, because it's called stereotype replacement, there's the last little bit. You replace that thought with something else. So kind of an assertion like women can be great scientists in the example I was using. And so basically it's a process of slowing down the kind of automatic fast um, thinking process and then kind of replacing the stereotypic response with something that's more in line with your values. So rehearsing a different mental pathway um, that reflects how you want to think. Okay. Have, have you explored, so I, and maybe I'm making uh, an assumption here that I shouldn't, but I, it, sound, it sounds like this is, this approach would work better for people who want to overcome their biases. Um, yeah. Is that, I guess, Fair and have you explored kind of whether or not this might work with someone who is uh, who who doesn't necessarily want to overcome the bias? Or yeah, so won't even admit they have them. Right. So, so this is that motivation component that I, I okay. talked about as part of the steps of the habit model. So, like someone else telling you that you should change a habit is just never going to work. Um, <laughs> you're just going to tune them out. If it's not important to you, it's, it's never going to do anything. So, so this you're absolutely right. This is for people who personally find themselves falling prey to unintentional bias. They notice stereotypes pop in mind. And they wish they didn't. Um, and so they're motivated to change that because that's what their values say. So you're absolutely right. Now, as far as uh, people who aren't motivated, um, so there have undoubtedly been at least some of those in our many studies using this intervention over the years. We're, um, mm -hmm. That hasn't been a specific target um, of our research. We haven't tried to um, specifically assess those people. Um, I, but I think your intuition is exactly right. It, this kind of approach shouldn't work for them because there's nothing that they want to change. Now, there are going to be some people who maybe their values say that they don't want to be biased, and they just aren't kind of aware that they could express bias unintentionally. And that's, again, part of this model where you have the motivation, then awareness. 
to helping people to understand that sometimes you do things you don't intend um, that might be at odds with your values. So motivation and awareness, and then I, I shared one of the strategies is the third kind of component. And then last, um, for this habit model, the last thing is effort. So it's not something where they can just go through a training and then be, be fixed forever and never have another biased thought. It requires effort and kind of applying these strategies over time to retrain um, the way our, our minds think about other people. Wow. So, yeah, so I'm curious in thinking about the motivation piece, um, you know, I as immediately as a, my background's in counseling psych, and so was thinking about kind of, you know, problems that people don't necessarily want to change at first, things like substance abuse and yeah. uh, conditions, and, and thinking about like the kind of the role of motivational interviewing in that. Is there a, do you ever see a universe in which prior to someone getting to you, they, there might be other interventions to just make them aware of the fact that they should want to do something about this? Hmm. Well, um, I guess the way we think of it with this intervention, we kind of build that in to the training. Right. So um, we, we share examples. Sometimes we um, in some of the studies we have them do a, a task called the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, which kind of reveals mm -hmm. some of these automatic things. So, so we um, usually build that in in some way where we kind of give people – um, an insight that okay. they might want And we use uh, relatable anecdotes that uh, most people can identify with to, to get themselves in that zone. So, but, but that is a good, okay. idea. Uh, a good idea. And you mentioned uh, counseling sites. So if you uh, saw my website, one of my big papers uh, was authored with a depression researcher named Lynn Abramson. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, my longtime collaborator, Trish Devine, and also a cognitive behavior therapist, um, Steve Holland. And basically, okay. I kind of set up that there are very similar parallels between um, cognitive behavior therapy and this approach that we take, where it's basically training people to kind of alter these automatic cognitions. So if you look at cognitive behavior therapy for um, depression that arises from negative cognitions, you have people who have automatic thoughts that make them think things like, I'm stupid, I'm fat, I'm horrible. And if you look at kind of bias and prejudice, people get automatic negative thoughts that, you know, Perhaps black people are unintelligent or lazy or, or what have you. And the process of changing those sorts of habitual automatic thoughts um, should basically be the same within depression and within prejudice. And so we kind of built a lot um, in that paper drawing these parallels. And then in this intervention, I draw a lot on cognitive behavior therapy and some of the things that they've done and learned in that realm to help enhance the effectiveness of our approach. You know, you're someone who, at least from the way you're describing it, you know, you really, uh, when you think back to, like, basic research methods courses, you know, we talk a lot about the distinction between, you know, basic and applied research and someone who's doing, you know, and yeah. as I as I listen to you, it sounds like you're someone who's really doing an interesting job of doing both, right? Um, and oh, I'm wondering, do, do you see it that way, I guess, but also is that in intentional? Is that something that, as you thought about your academic career, you, you're intentionally trying to do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I do think of myself that way. In fact, um, I got a large grant from the NIH this past year, which is funding my lab and all my research for the next five years. And I mean, the title Congratulations. Of it, thank you. <laughs> thank you. The title of it is Basic and Applied, or, or maybe Basic and Translational Approaches to Something Something, where I'm very clearly strongly emphasizing exactly what you just said. So, so yes, I, I, I really enjoyed basic research where I'm kind of testing um, concrete, specific hypotheses about different ways that 
neurons in the brain relate to perpetuating bias and different neural pathways and the brain's reward system, lots of different um, very, very basic research that doesn't immediately have direct application. Um, but as we kind of uncover uh, more basic knowledge about how these processes play out in people's minds, the ways that um, bias gets learned and perpetuated, um, that then gives insights that we can add to our intervention approach. So we can teach people new and different ways to uh, think about bias, new ways that it plays out. So I very much like kind of crossing that basic to applied uh, boundary and, and working on both fronts. And sometimes, you know, so when we do these trainings in person, um, this intervention training in person, people share examples of things that have happened to them that are just kind of very interesting and kind of inspire new lines of basic research as well to think about um, how some of that kind of stuff might play out. Mm -hmm. So I do know they're, they're very much, yeah, uh, that is right where I, I am for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, and I, I noticed too, I mean, you you have been all over the media, right? I mean, you've been Washington Post, Invisibilia, IFL Science, you know, a, a lots and lots of places, which is great uh, in the in the context of getting the word out there about your important work. I wonder if you, you know, I noticed a lot of attention was um, was on uh, an article related to the Gaydar myth. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, when I was first starting out in grad school, actually, I was very interested in, um, and I still am, very interested in how stereotypes are used differently for different um, social groups. Um, and one part of that was for racial social groups, so for, for race, um, people tend to see what someone's race is first, and then the stereotype is activated. So see a black person, and then it activates the idea that maybe he's into basketball or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it starts with the group membership and then goes to other attributes. But when it comes to stereotypes related, um, especially to gay men and lesbians, um, I, the stereotypes kind of work in the opposite direction. So you see some other kind of attribute, like how a guy is dressed the guy is dressed fashionably or wearing pink or something like that, people will often jump to the conclusion that he's gay. So it goes from the other attribute and it's used to kind of make an assumption about whether a guy's gay or straight. Um, and so I was interested in these kind of different, this different kind of structure of the stereotypes and the different functions that they were serving in culture. Um, and so I was, so, so the, the gay example is a bit of what people call gaydar, so being able to tell who's gay. And it's really, um, according to my work and, and how I think about it, it's really just relying on stereotypes. Um, and there, um, part of why it got a lot of media attention is there was another group of researchers who had been uh, putting out this work that says you could tell who's gay, basically saying that, you know, they have kind of scientific proof that people have accurate gaydar, um, that people can accurately tell who's gay by looking at their faces, um, implying that it's something about the facial structure. Um, and so that's a little bit, if people can tell who's gay by looking at their facial structure, then it kind of didn't mesh very well with my ideas about stereotypes being used to categorize people. Because if you can tell who's gay by looking at them, um, you wouldn't need the stereotypes to do that. So I got into that um, research a bit. Um, and what I found is that uh, basically the pictures that these researchers were using um, had a lot of confounds in them that made them kind of not equivalent. So um, what I found and what they later replicated in their own pictures, they found quality differences in the pictures. So the gay men's pictures and straight men's pictures weren't of equal quality before going into these studies where they showed people these pictures and asked them to guess who's gay or straight. Um, and in my study, when I 
eliminated that quality difference either by taking my own pictures or by matching the pictures on quality, um, their kind of spatial structure or their alleged spatial structure effects just disappeared um, and, and weren't there anymore. Hmm. Um, and uh, through the course of that, I, I talked about why the idea of gaydar um, might um, not be such a good thing. So this idea of the gaydar myth. Um, so when we tell, uh, let me think about how to say this. Um, so I talk about gaydar as a legitimizing myth. And legitimizing myths are things in our culture that kind of preserve the status quo. They kind of make bias okay or make poverty okay. Or they kind of just, it's a story we tell ourselves to not feel as bad, not have to put in the work of kind of changing the way we think about a different social group. Um, and so I started arguing that this gaydar idea um, is a legitimizing myth. So if someone looks at someone and based on how he's dressed, makes the assumption that he's gay, if you call that stereotyping, most people are going to be like, oh, I shouldn't stereotype. Stereotyping is a bad thing. But if you call it gaydar, it sounds just kind of light and fluffy and fun, and it's not such a bad thing. And so, so I argued that this, this idea of gaydar, the gaydar myth, legitimizes stereotyping and probably perpetuates these stereotypes. Um, and so I then uh, demonstrated that in a study. So I had one group of participants um, who, ahead of um, this task, I told them, hey, research has shown that gaydar is a real thing. People actually have gaydar, you know, um, and can really tell who's gay or straight. And then I had a control group where I kind of didn't tell them anything like that. And then I had a third group where I said, oh, a lot of people say that they have gaydar, but it's actually just a stereotyping process. People just rely on stereotypes. Um, and that's what, what gaydar is. It's just another name for stereotyping. And then they went into a task where they were uh, supposed to be judging whether um, these men were gay or straight. Um, and some of the men had gay stereotypic um, traits associated with them. So there was a guy who liked shopping, another guy who uh, – wasn't into sports and, and so on. And then some that had straight stereotypic things, so a guy who was into sports or a guy who was a firefighter, things that we had pre-tested that kind of lead people to stereotype and assume that the guys are gay or straight, respectively. Um, and basically what happened is when we told people that gaydar was real, um, they stereotyped at much, much higher rates. They just kind of had more confidence to rely on their stereotypes and better to use the stereotypes. And when we told them, actually, just another name for stereotyping, and when we told them that, we didn't tell them not to stereotype. We didn't tell them stereotyping is bad. We didn't say that it was inaccurate or anything like that. We mm -hmm. just said, oh, it's just another name for stereotyping. Um, those people, their rates of stereotyping went down compared to the controls. They actually stereotyped a lot less. Um, and so, so that, that supports that, that, that study is the basic support for this idea that it's a legitimizing myth because when people right. are led to believe it, they stereotype more. And when it's kind of dispelled, they uh, stereotype less. Hmm. That and, is uh, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. Oh, just one last thing I realized I, I didn't say. Um, also, the stereotypes don't lead to accurate conclusions in the real world. Um, so. Okay. When people use the stereotype, whether it's how someone's dressed, what their profession is, whatever it is, um, they're going to be – if they use that to assume that someone's gay, they're going to be wrong much, much more than, um, often than they're going to be right. Just because there are more straight people in the world, um, and, and basically there are more straight guys who seem gay to people based on stereotypic traits um, than there are gay people in total, and not all the gay people seem gay. Um, so most of the time, people are going to be wrong when they're making an assumption that someone's gay based on something like a stereotype. That is really fascinating. And it, it actually, it's consistent with 
many sort of conversations I've had with people in my personal life throughout throughout my life, you know, who would who would sort of make the claim that Gadar is real and uh, and so on. So that is really yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and very um, often, especially people in the gay community. So so uh, just to come out, I'm a gay man, and so I um, I'm also in touch with these things from within our community, and. Uh, one of the things that often happens is people think that they are gaydar because they can tell when someone's attracted to them. So, like, someone's flirting with them or making eye contact. But that's actually very different because if you run into someone who's not attracted to you, then you're not going to pick up on the fact that they're gay because they're not attracted to you specifically. Um, so it's not really detecting who's gay and who's not um, in those cases. It's detecting who's attracted to you, which is which is different. Um, I have right. a friend, Gary. He calls this uh, the the quote, ugly people don't have gaydar argument, where it's like, well, if someone's not attractive and no one's checking them out and revealing their orientation in that way, um, then they they can't have gaydar. Um, and that's, yeah. Does that all make sense? Interesting. Yes. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I want to, um, I guess, two two final questions. One is is just, do you have any anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want people to know about your work or what you're up to, that kind of thing? Um, I think we've covered some of the big stuff. Uh, okay. But um, overall, I would say I would encourage people to uh, rely less on their kind of gut reactions to people and their kind of intuitions about other people and kind of take a little more time to be thoughtful and evaluate where those kind of gut reactions are coming from. Because gaydar is another way of relying on your gut, and so are most forms of stereotyping and bias. It's a gut reaction that we kind of let drive our behavior rather than relying on actual evidence or qualifications that someone has. So I'd say, you know, take the time to be thoughtful and uh, rely on that rather than automatic responses. Well, you know, in, to that end, I want to point to um, so the opening line of your research statement on your website says it talks about the your goal being reducing the injustice, human suffering, and disparities that arise from stereotyping and prejudice. And and I think the main reason I want to highlight that is that I think it's important to acknowledge that there are real costs to this, right? That 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 stereotyping is. Um, has serious consequences to people's lives uh, in, in that that negative way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so my uh, my only other question is, where can people learn more about you and your work? I mentioned your website earlier, but you may want to uh, it's yeah. uh, dot com. Um, but are you Twitter or anywhere else that people might want? Yeah, um, so it's every, yeah, all the places you go, it's it's science cox. So just remember, so sciencecox dot com. Twitter is at sciencecox. Facebook dot com slash sciencecox. So all that. And if you're interested, if anyone's interested in the Gator stuff specifically. Um, if you go to sciencecox.com slash gaydar, um, there's an infographic there that kind of explains the basic points from that original paper that um, makes it easy to grasp, in addition to links where you can actually get the papers. That is all wonderful. So I am so thankful for your time. This has been really fascinating. And I'm thankful sure. to the friend, actually, the friend who put us in touch. Um, who yeah. is Kimberly Kimberly Vleese, our podcast artist, actually for the for the podcast. Oh, um, yeah, so thanks, I, I Kimberly. <laughs> yeah, I, I mention her every episode, but I'm super thankful that she uh, she put us in touch because this has been really interesting. Yeah, great, and great. it's been wonderful talking with you. Great, thank you very much. And that does it for this episode. Special thanks to Dr. Will Cox for being on the show. That was really interesting. You can learn more about his work at sciencecox.com, including links to not just his original research, but his media appearances. 
In the meantime, I want you to find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Psychology and Stuff or Psych and Stuff on Twitter. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, her intern, Preston Fisher, our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees, who introduced me to Dr. Cox, and our fabulous intern, Shayla Warren. Make sure to join us for Psych Week, brought to you by Bell & Psychiatric, by visiting uwgb.edu slash psychweek. Until then, keep being amazing. 